Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Petty. I'm Joel Dahlqvist. <laughs> and I'm Brian Kotick. <laughs> and we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and one percent um presidential news there's been some movement on that front i'm more than one percent of that that's for sure (laughs) well i don't know what you're talking about but i'm referring to the (laughs) new president at the icc oh (laughs) (laughs) left turn of course this is not a political podcast good point which now has been confirmed, right? Yes. I, I didn't know that. Okay, that's good. When, when does she... Oh, my gosh. I hope it... <laughs> that's what I... Yes. I think it was, uh, it was the beginning of the year, if I'm not mistaken. You were more informed than I am. Uh, I was under the impression that she was going to start in the summer, but obviously I assume there's some sort of uh, lead time between the confirmation and the, the entering into right. office, like, like the U.S. presidential mm-hmm. election. So Maybe 20, I should have so, checked so, the info... Well, she's going to speak at this new initiative, that the Rising Arbitrators Initiative, as the president. So okay. I, I assume that the right. title is yeah. confirmed. Uh, but there, it's, yeah. there, there might still, or there might not still be time to storm the ICC offices if you're a big <laughs> Alexi Moore <laughs> supporter. I'll wear my Viking helmet. <laughs> Fake election. Steal a podium from one Stop of the, the hearing steal. rooms. Stop the steal. <laughs> oh my God, could you imagine? <laughs> Alexi Moore's like stapling himself to the chair, being like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. She is going to start her term um, in July, but you know, she's been, she's been named. So, yeah. Should we, I, last time we almost skipped over the where in the world are you part. Should we just ignore that part for the time being and assume that unless we say anything else, we're all in London? Or can we? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lockdown number. I don't know how many, number three, is that what it is? Yeah. Um, if we're counting. But this anymore. will be the long one. We did. Yeah, we I think it's just become normal. Actually, a year ago, more or less exactly, that, that, I, that we called the lockdown episode. That was naive in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, as if it was going to be just a one, one shot thing. Yeah. Oh, dear. And it's the first episode of 2021 where maybe. Typically, we would do a review of what has happened in arbitration in 2020, but A, we have not prepared such a review, and B, it was, let's be honest, a pretty depressing year. Yeah, let's look to the future. And there Happy New Year, by the way. We yes, Happy New Year. Exchange our wishes. <laughs> happy New Year. There's a lot of news for 2021 already. So we can... Yeah, uh, not, not just a new ICC president. But we should say that for those who are interested in a year in review, our excellent sponsor, I Reporter, who, who get, a, get a lot of free plugs from us just because we like them so much. They've <laughs> done a, a year in review 
that is uh, rather extensive what happened in 2020 in investment arbitration, not so much commercial arbitration, of course, but in investment arbitration. And reading through it, I realized there have been a lot of interesting developments that are not solely related to COVID-19, but a bunch of mega awards where we've seen a lot of stuff that, that I think we have forgotten about at this point, including the, the Yukos set aside that is now in the uh, Dutch Supreme Court and all the various ACMEA rulings that came out uh, by tribunals. And, mm-hmm. uh, all the renewable energy so, developments. Yes, exactly. That too. They are good at this because they have all this database, both actual databases and the minds of the people working there. So they are in a good position to synthesize what has happened in 2020. Yeah. I don't know about commercial arbitration. Uh, I can't really think of any like global major trends. What? <laughs> talked about so many, Jill, including the, the issue with respect to the law applicable to the arbitration agreement. Yeah, that was a Did big you remember one. that whole right. saga. About the, the Chub- rules. Yeah, the battle of the sea. Yeah, the Chubb cases as well uh, were interesting in that respect. Um, now my mind is going blank about other developments, but I'm sure there's been a lot, a lot of them. <laughs> the new that we have rules covered. that you told us about, Sonia. Yeah, the new rules. Yeah, the new nice. rules, of course, the new ICC rules as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been plenty of, actually, the ICC rules are now in force since the beginning of this year, so... Yeah, there's been a lot of changes, I think, in both fields, in both commercial and investment arbitration. Hence our podcast. A lot of <laughs> exactly, yes. hence our podcast. So we have addressed yeah. a lot of these things, but it's true. It's, it's, it's good to, to remind people because the, the article by IU Reporter is ex- extremely extensive and I think it's really well, well written. So definitely have a look Turn, at it. Turning to the, to the future, I also realized that the topics of today, at least the two substantive ones, are really two good topics to kick off a new year with. We're, we're starting small with the Holocaust and space. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting episode. We'll start, I will start with a presentation of a case that got brought before me and I'll inter- introduce it properly when we get into the segment um, that has to do with post-World War II, well, World War II property, but post-World War II claims. Um, so kind of, it will be more of a test case, academic, you know, it hasn't been brought before. So kind of a discussion that will be kind of the tone of the discussion um, for that. So we'll go through whether these claims are viable and what issues um, any a potential investor would would meet in such a scenario. That's great. And then you and I, Brian, we did an interview with uh, Rachel O'Grady, newly minted partner. I don't think we congratulated her on air. She's a partner with Marion Brown. And I think she is a partner as of this year. But ah, okay. Congrats to her. Yes, exactly. And she has an interest, as it turns out, does Brian in space and the arbitration in space or other uh, disputes related to things that are in space, <laughs> yeah. not so much arbitration. So what, Star Wars, is it called the Star Wars arbitration or what is it? Is that what it is? She is actually it? wrote an article and it's, I think it said what well, the title had to do with Star Wars. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and but she no, also, we didn't talk about that either. But she also proposed, uh, or maybe she didn't propose, but she mentions a potential international convention on settlement of, of uh, space disputes, which she named the Ixod Convention. <laughs> <laughs> R2D2. Please do remember. Yes, Amazing. exactly. And no, happy, that... happy time, guys. Is, uh, I think I will take the lead, but I have a few questions for you. And it's about English as the second language. 
which is something that uh, many arbitration lawyers and two out of three in this group share working Mm -hmm. in your second language, which tends to be most common when you're working in English. And I I have some thoughts on this, and I'm sure the two of you do as well. And I also have an American partner, as you know. So this is an everyday problem for me because I can't (laughs) speak properly. (laughs) What is properly? I have an English partner and it's still a problem. So (laughs) yeah, that's one of my questions. We'll get back to this. I'm interested in the US versus UK English thing as well and how Uh. to address it when you don't speak English to begin with and you have to take a stand. Yes. But I think, is that it? Or do we have more uh, preliminary things now in the, in the new year before we, we start off small with, with Holocaust-related claims? All for me. Yeah, all for me too. I mean, there's been a bunch of new initiatives in this new year, but uh, we're going to be talking about it more in the next episode. Um, yeah, we have a, a lot of things lined mm-hmm. up. I look forward to this. Yeah. Uh, a lot of interesting guests, both well-known and less so, that will come and grace us with their presence. Yes, great. So looking forward to that. So let's let's get into the Holocaust claim. All right, not an easy task to deal with this, these types of claims uh, since they haven't really been arbitrated before. Uh, they are currently being litigated, but they haven't been arbitrated before. So there's um, some new aspects to these claims that I really want to get your guys' insight on. But um, before I start, I have to make a disclaimer that this was brought to me actually through the podcast um, by an individual who represents some of these potential claimants. And uh, for one reason or the other, the case hadn't moved, hasn't moved forward yet, um, which I can actually discuss um, as part of the merits analysis of these types of claims. But I will, will say that none of the information that I have is from these previous discussions I've had with these other representatives, but they've come from all publicly available information and also from two articles that if people are interested in reading uh, further on this type of issue, there, there are articles that are published. Um, there's one article by Michael Basler uh, called Restitution of Private Property in Postwar Poland, uh, which is a Loyola International Law Review article. Um, and also Katarzyna McNaughton, The Problem of Property Reprivatization in Warsaw, um, in the same publication. So these are um, articles that everyone can, can find and read about and where I've gotten a lot of the information for this segment. Okay, so legal liability aside, we can get into the facts of this case. Um, so near the end of World War II, the Soviet Red Army drove out German forces from Warsaw and a provisional pro-communist coalition took control of the nation. Um, Now this communist government quickly increased its popular base and political power and eventually the Polish United Workers Party became the sole governing party of the new communist nation. Um, By 1950, the new government had enacted multiple decrees and the objectives of those decrees was a widespread nationalization of property, the centralization of the economy and the reversal of a lot of the takings of immovable property that occurred during the Nazi occupation. Um, The first of those came actually before 1945, it's called the 1945 decree on judicial decisions made during the German occupation that said all of those decisions were legally invalid. Um, But the main uh, decree that kind of forms the initial basis for these claims is called the Warsaw decree or or the Beirut decree based off the person who promulgated the decree. And what it did is it transferred present ownership of all real property destroyed in the war within the city's pre-war boundaries to the capital city of Warsaw. 
And Article 1 of that decree says that in order to ensure the rational way of reconstruction of the capital and further its development in accordance with the needs of the people, in particular, the goal of quickly acquiring the goods, uh, the grounds and their proper usage, all grounds within the territory of capital city of Warsaw come into the possession of the Gamina, uh, which is the legislative body, I believe, or the regulatory body of the capital city of Warsaw on the day this decree comes into force. Um, and then what the decree did is not only did it retake the property, but at the same time, it granted rights for the people that had initially owned the property. So under Article 7 of the Warsaw Decree, former property owners or their legal successors, key point, had the right to apply for and receive back temporary ownership rights for their confisc confiscated property. And this is what's called a usufruk, to which I have never heard of, but it's a property uh, term that basically provided a 99-year lease on these properties that were taken. So that's the the temporary aspect is is a potential 99-year right. So it's it's it, I mean it's temporary in the sense that it's not permanent, but it's also not uh, a useless right if it's for no years. no 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 exactly. And actually, um, under Polish law, the Constitutional Court deemed uh, that these were actually property rights. So it actually went through the Polish court system and, the, and constitutionally these were deemed um, property rights because that was one of the questions. Um, and actually the Polish Constitutional Tribunal even said that the Warsaw Decree imposed an affirmative obligation on the government to grant compliant applications filed under the Warsaw Decree. So what happens was if you thought that you were a potential claimant of property that was confiscated, you would file an application to the, to the city of Warsaw and they would mm -hmm. determine based off the documents you provided and proof of ownership, whether you had a right to the property. Now, some of the property was completely destroyed, so they couldn't, or something else was built on there, so they wouldn't give you back the property. So they would give you actually restitution in lieu of getting back um, your property rights. Now, after the fall of communism in 1989, Poland began a transformative process of privatization. So they took everything publicly and then they started to privatize after mm -hmm. the fall of the communism. Um, and then throughout the 1990s, they undertook several legislative initiatives to further address these long ignored claims that were granted under the initial Warsaw Decree. Um, I won't go through all of them, but there are several of them. And what they did is kind of create, it didn't do what it intended to do, essentially. So these new, these new decrees and acts that were passed by the Polish government post-communism were intended to privatize, further privatize the economy, which meant give these property rights back to the individuals or their rightful owners. But what they did is give, actually, when you look through the legislation, they granted more discretion to the government to actually reject these initial Warsaw Decree claims so that no one was able to get their rights. So they said um, some of these grounds to refuse applications were whether the property was already sold to a third party, whether it was being used for a public purpose, where the buildings on the land owned could not be purchased simultaneously, uh, that were 66% or more destroyed during the war, or where it was impossible to divest the land from the property erected therefrom. So they created all these grounds in which they could do that. And it sounds like a lot of stuff could have happened in between like yeah. the 1940s and the 1990s that would have meet these criteria, making it very hard to reclaim property. Exactly. So now you have all these applications that were dormant for, for about 40 years because the mm -hmm. original decree was in, for, in the 40s and now you're in the 80s or 90s and now you realize that there's all these grounds for your dormant claim of 40 years is now, you know, not able, can be, can be refused on this ground. 
So the main kicker, and the one thing I want you guys to keep in your mind when we discuss the merits or the, the legal analysis, is that in 2015, in the wake of a series of scandals of fraudulent trading of Warsaw Decree claims, because people were buying and selling these claims and, and paying people off, Poland introduced and enacted the Small Reprivatization Act. And that ultimately held to be constitution. that act was held to be constitutional. And what it did is it co- incorporated this um, list of reasons for refusal into general legislation as it related to the Warsaw Decree. And they set up a new procedure. And this procedure is something I want to highlight. So what they would do is they would publish on the city of Warsaw's website and say, this person has a claim. And they'd leave that um, advertisement up for 30 days. Um, and it was selected at random. So it wasn't chronological. It wasn't alphabetical. So you had no idea if your property was going to be up or when it was going to be up. But they would say, the, the announcement would say that the applicant or her legal successors are requested to appear in person before this department within six months from the date of this notice, provide their current addresses of residence, and within the successive three months, prove their right to real estate. Now, if you guys know Jews, we don't stay put. We are wandering Jews. <laughs> so if you tell us after World War II, when everyone's running for their life and trying to populate any place that will house them to then come back to Poland within six months, and these people are, you know, in their 70s or 80s, to then right. appear. And then I, I, th- I don't know if you guys know this, but they destroyed documents during the Holocaust. Oh, yeah. So to then <laughs> prove your, not only your proof of ownership, but you'd have to prove your lineage. And then this successive three months, so this right of real estate that they say in the successive three months mm-hmm. is proving that your inheritance uh, actually followed to you. So, um, you know, uncles and aunts that were all living together at that time, because you had a multifamily household, you know, whether that mm-hmm. property could actually be, um, could be granted to these heirs. Um, And if you didn't come within these 30 days or you didn't formally respond to this announcement, then the announcement would disappear and you would have no no idea that your property was up for grabs. And then if you, um, even if you were fortunate enough to to realize this and present within the six months, um, it almost became impossible once you started presenting your claim, Uh, those were being rejected quite arbitrarily. Um, And again, these inheritance proceedings were, you know, particularly difficult. So Mm -hmm. that kind of forms the basis for how to make this case relevant today, um, because it happened in 2015. So you could say that these claims were, well, I'll get into the merits, but these claims were old, they were, you know, could not be brought in arbitration, but this 2015 kind of renewal of Uh, not only recognizing that these claims still existed by publishing it on the website, but then creating this completely impossible procedure in order to to gain restitution for these claims. Mm -hmm. So the issues... Maybe we're we're heading into... Sorry, Brian. I I don't want to jump ahead, but what what is the alleged investment then? Because I assume we're talking about an investment claim. Is it that some sort of property right was created in 2015 or that it was sort of revived What's the, what's the temporal? Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly one of the issues, which is, um, was there an investment? And you get into like a Cellini criteria issue, first of mm-hmm. all, before even discussing what the right is, whether that is an actual investment, this purchase of property, where it could be now because you're actually purchasing it, but inheriting a property right is that the same as an investment in a property right. 
Um, so that is an issue that is definitely a weakness, you know, an issue with the or case. Or a claim. It could just be the claim arising out of having that property exactly. uh, person to the decree afterwards, right? So that's exactly how you would frame the, the, the investment to kind of avoid that issue. But mm-hmm. uh, your question, Joel, was whether this could be inherited yeah, and also, and also the, the the temporal aspects, not just investor, but mm. also uh, not just investment, but also investor, because presumably you need to rely on a treaty, and you need to be a foreign citizen, which I guess the the, the, yeah. the claimants are. But were they at the time when the right was originally created? That depends on mm-hmm. when the right was created, because if you're relying on something that happened in the 1940s, they were presumably Polish citizens at the time. So it's not a not a foreign investment. I guess That's another issue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so mm-hmm. actually, the way if you fra- if you f- frame the case like Saudia did, which is to say it's a claim, then you kind of avoid this issue because the claim arose at the time you were not able to meet the qualifications of the 2015 legislation, and therefore you're within your time. And then the right arose later, so it's not your right in the property that you're claiming; it's the right of the claim. Mm-hmm. Um, then. To go to your point about investor, that is another issue. And that has to do, again, get your right with the nationality. Also, mm-hmm. it's a change in nationality because the original investor was Polish. And then now the heir is not Polish. A lot of right. these people have tried to reclaim their citizenship, Mikola issue, because um, they wanted to get restitution directly from the government apart from these claims. So there's all these issues. And then um, the, the other thing with the investor is that, oh, then you you get into a jurisdictional issue with, um, you know, to bring this claim, it has to be valuable, of course. Um, and so you need to group some claimants together. And these people are all over the world. And you're now dealing with 10 different BITs and, you know, the logistics of bringing all those together. It is right. possible. Um, I did research. There's no express provision and it's a trial or the ICSID rules or the ICSID convention that prevents multi-party claims based on multiple BITs. And there's actually been a, a few cases um, that have had multiple BITs. Oh yeah, that is true. Yeah, Poland's not an ICSID contracting state though, is it? Yeah, I don't think ICSID is. No, available. so this case would not ha- would not be able to be brought before ICSID, yeah. but um, there are some um, some UNSATRAL cases that uh, allow for these types of multi-party proceedings, but it, it is, you know, an issue to face. To yeah, face it would them. depend on the terms of the treaty. If they're drafted differently, then it might not be possible. To exactly. They can't be in conflict. You're, you're exactly yeah. right. They have to be completely harmonious. And then sorry to, I, but I guess you're also indirectly asking for free tire kicking here of a potential case. So we might as well try to kick the tires and ask critical <laughs> questions. <laughs> what about the quantification? Uh, how, how do you uh, value the the, mm-hmm. the investments? Because I, I assume there's a pretty big discrepancy in whatever they were valued at in, in, in 1945 and whatever they're valued at now, in particular if it's in Warsaw, Warsaw where you know, mm-hmm. property values have gone dramatically up. Over yeah, exactly. And under, so the interesting thing to, to do here is to draw a parallel between the court cases and how they're, they're monetizing those claims in the courts. Um, and they're actually quite reduced to what they would be in arbitration, which is, you know, an, an interesting discussion on whether you should be able to claim more damages that are available in arbitration than would be in the domestic courts for the exact same mm-hmm. claim. Um, but the, I, you could argue that there's limitations in the domestic courts that shouldn't be there in the first place. But um, 
so yeah, I agree with you. And I, you know, arguably the property, you basically, you deprived me of the ownership of the property in 1945. And therefore whatever value it is at the time of the claim is what you need to be valuing it at. So you value it at 2015 based off the same measurements of the property. The problem is those property lines don't exist in most cases or, you know, have been completely altered and the 1945 lines are really hard to find. So that, that is, you know, another issue in and of itself. And interest as well. I can imagine that would be a debate on interest, right? Yeah. How much interest and from where do you count um, interest, et cetera. Yeah, so some, there's two two trains of thought here. One is, do you count interest from the time of the taking, the original right. taking, but then you get into jurisdictional, temporal jurisdictional issues there, or do you do it at the time of the claim and then just, you know, calculate interest there? And so what's the taking? That's also the question, because it's not the taking of the property, right? No, it's, it's the taking the of taking the right of the to claim. Yeah, exactly. Then you get into another issue, which is the exhaustion of local remedies. And I know that mm. there is not an express obligation to do this. However, um, one would argue that especially a lot of these claims are currently in the domestic court system, that there would be a discussion or, you know, a, definitely an objection by Poland to say that, well, wait a second, these, these are currently before the courts. Let's just wait for them to be heard out. And, right. and you know, it, there would be no prejudice to either side. Um, unless, unless it's a, if you frame it as a denial of justice, yeah, and, or effective right, means, and, which some of the BITs provide, right, exactly, and then I, I imagine you would have to go through that local remedy step. Yeah, yeah. or you could say it would be Although futile based debated. on the statistics. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. does the, the this is a separate sub question? Is it is it in itself futile because the claimant in question generally is very old? Good point. Like uh, assume, assume in, in, a, in a very hypothetical scenario, I have no idea if this is the case, but that you can predict that a court case will take five years and an arbitration mm -hmm. will take a year and a half and the claimant is 83 and of frail health. Yeah. Does that mm -hmm. uh, mean that you can skip the court procedure and go straight to arbitration? <laughs> is that part of the yeah. futility I test? I, I don't think so, but I... Don't know. Uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's an argument, especially if if the people bringing in the claims are have inherited. Inher <laughs> yeah, inherited themselves. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's I more. How I think that the, works. Yeah, I mean, the, the argument that you can't wait that long is that is that what it is essentially, Joel? Yeah, when you put it like that, it it's not a very strong one. <laughs> well, I, would that be a denial of justice? In, in yeah, exactly. Itself? Yeah, in justice itself, dead yeah. is justice denied. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but if you if you really just look at the 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 merits issues, like let let's say this all happened today and the war was yesterday, the merits mm -hmm. on them on the face are quite compelling, but. Then you, and this is what really frustrates me because you look at this case and you're like, this is quite compelling. This is something that actually happened. And this is where we can actually make a mark in a humanitarian way in arbitration. And then you get to the yeah. nitty gritty of it and you're like, there's no way. <laughs> so, no. It's such an uphill battle. <laughs> well, I was going to say your, your presentation also of the facts is a little bit biased, counsel. <laughs> Our yeah, claimant. If yeah, I may be the advocate for, I'm not going to call the devil because we don't know, right? But respondent. But it's true that from a state perspective, they're just going to say that we're, you know, these were the criteria. You're not demonstrating that they're more restrictive. You need yeah. to demonstrate that, you know. 
yes, they were changed, but yada, yada, yada. Or, and there's know, a rationale it's, for it. There's a rationale yeah. for this type of change, which is economic development and post-war right. era. Yeah, there could be a public policy argument. Exactly. Yeah. Like even even if you brought this claim in 1951, it is entirely possible that it's like it's it's a legitimate expect uh, not expectation a legitimate uh, expropriation, <laughs> a, a legal expropriation. Like it is illegal. So you're compensating. Yes, you're compensating. Yeah. It's prompt and and uh, reasonable. Yeah, and, and they're and they're doing it for doing it for the right reasons, and the mm-hmm. reasons obviously are extraordinary mm-hmm. in in a post war time when basically the whole country and the city uh, are both devastated. But but mm-hmm. even, uh, well, it's not 1951, so you, know, you have the additional challenge of of it not being 1951 and having an additional <laughs> 60 years to overcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that was my 2019 trying to figure this out. Wow. Very interesting. Mm, so interesting, right? Yeah, yeah I, think, it I think it's, it's I mean, it's, I, it's a discussion and you talk about, you know, the Vermeer painting and how that works. And you, you think like, it can happen again. It can happen again. So <clears throat> hopefully there's a way to find, find a way to get this before uh, three knowledgeable people. Yeah. And also it, it, it's interconnected. It, it links with other cases too. Like, uh, for example, when the... You know, the, I'm not going to talk too much about this because my firm was involved in this case, but the Pecasado Chile case, you know, mm-hmm. um, because Pinochet expropriated some property. And then, you know, the, the question was whether or not compensation was due or not, you know, properly to the claimant. Mm-hmm. Same thing because Chile had compensated a few, um, you know, um, owners of, of property and they did not compensate our investor, et cetera. And what, why not? And he had to demonstrate he was the you know, the one who owned the property and so on and so forth, right. you know? And so it's, it's not like an isolated issue, I think. No, that's a good comparison. It's also a, a worrisome comparison for Brian because that, that case is famously the most long-running case in investment. <laughs> yes, yes. But that's <laughs> for like so many other decades. reasons that I can't really speak about. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of, of problems in that case. I think it, it did, it was like a, it's like a case law book, you know, example for oh, so definitely. many, so many principles came out of that, of that saga. Good education. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really interesting, really interesting series of facts. So let's see what happens. Definitely. So I need a glass of water. Let's switch the focus to Rachel O'Grady. Yeah. Thanks, arbitration. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome back. We are sitting with another interview for the second half of the season. We have Rachel O'Grady visiting us from Mayor Brown. She's a partner in the international arbitration or dispute resolution practice uh, here in London. And we have suckered her into discussing about space law and arbitration, something that I personally have a fondness for and something we hear Rachel has an enthusiasm for. Yeah, don't um, say so... it's we, it's you, Brian, it's me. I have yeah. been tricked into two space nerds <laughs> talking to each other and I, I'm just participating. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking through a wormhole. Um, okay, so Rachel, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here and an honor to be here, in fact. So when we got in touch with you and and this topic came up, I was uh, shocked and and excited. As I said, what? How did you get introduced to um, space law and arbitration? Was it a case, or was it just your general interest? Um, so really, it was a case. So my background um, 
is in commercial and investment treaty arbitration. Um, and obviously, uh, part of that investment treaty arbitration touches on public areas of public international law. Um, but so I was, I was kind of familiar with the theories, um, but it was a case that really um, sparked my interest in this area and got me um, reading and researching it further. Um, it was a commercial case involving um, a, a, quite a big player in the, in the space industry some I mean, years yeah, ago now. That is my only, my only experience is in the commercial realm as well. So that's why I was interested in doing a bit of research that it also comes up in the vestment contests as well. Um, can you just kind of give us an introduction to, to how space law intersects with arbitration and the legal framework? Um, yeah, so I, it's difficult to know where to start because it's obviously such a huge, literally, and, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> such a huge area. But um, I think, well, the main, the, main, um, the main thing that everyone can relate to and see in the news is that space is no longer in the realms of, of governments and states. It's something that everyone is becoming um, part of private, you know, private companies, billionaire entrepreneurs, um, they're actually the ones now driving this industry, whereas historically um, it's been, it was, you know, governments and states. And um, so it, it's, and, and as technology um, advances and, um, you know, new developments are made, um, it, it, it's just taking, <laughs> I don't want to keep on using puns, but it's literally, it's taking off um, all over the place. Um, and I think with, with the rise of um, this um, private, um, you know, the, the interaction of private entities and companies in the, in the industry, um, that is giving rise to um, obviously increased commercial disputes and increased investor state disputes because obviously governments still operate in the sector as well. Um, but it's also um, creating a, 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 that, that there is a problem which is becoming more and more apparent, which is the legal framework in which all of these um, commercial entities are operating um, are legally governed by a very outdated uh, framework um, which was designed and adopted and implemented back like 50 years ago so the the um and oh, please stop me because i'll start rabbiting on but the, the legal framework that governs everything was was um brought about in the middle of the the cold war um in the 1960s when um you know there were really pretense political relations and um the space race was right starting and so there's this really out of date legal framework governing everything that hasn't been updated um and the advances being made on a technical and te in the, in the on a technological level are way outpacing the legal advances and it's resulting in a well debate definitely a potentially a legal clash um and a resolution isn't um isn't necessarily obvious at this point in time and i can obviously go into a bit more detail but just that's kind of it maybe i'm interested in what has happened since because i imagine that there have been legal developments as well not just technological and and also on, on sort of the domestic sphere as opposed to the traditional public international sphere 
or are we still dealing more or less exclusively with uh, a public international framework that not unlike the exit convention, by the way, and, and in another field that we're familiar with uh, governs the, the sphere. So the, the, um, the main treaty that go, the multi, the main multilateral legal framework that governs everything is the outer space treaty, which was adopted in 1967. So it was a couple of years after Russia had put the first satellite up a couple of years after the first man had gone into space, um, a couple of years before the first man landed on the moon. But this outer space treaty was negotiated as signed up to by, I think, well, over 100 countries, I think it's about 110 countries, and then 23 more, I think, have ratified it. Um, and so that's a 1967 treaty, which still today operates and governs everything. Um, that basically said that because of, you know, the era in which it was created, um, the outer space was the common heritage of mankind. Um, no sovereigns, sovereign states could uh, lay claim to any of its um you know, resources or celestial bodies. It was it was very much kind of to stop um, weapons being put up, and um, you, know, you know, it was all very happy. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm using arbitration station to speak now, but um, yeah. uh, so so that's that's what still exists today. Um, and obviously, whilst that has existed, and private entities have begun to um, start to operate in the sector. And need and you know that it's an expensive area to be in. You know, millions and millions of pounds of investment are going into like space mining um, technology and mineral extraction and um, insight resource utilization, which means basically finding water on the moon and making it into space rocket fuel. And so, um, governments, um, particularly governments of space or well, spacefaring nations, um, have recognized the importance of this rise in private sector activity and actually their dependence on it because i think governments are the first to acknowledge now that it's going to be the private sector that's going to implement help them implement their policies so certain governments have started to uh, unilaterally pass domestic laws which oh. grants their nationals legally or not but they're doing it um right property rights essentially um in outer space so for example the us um i think it was the first to do it so 2015 it passed this um the space act which granted its us nationals <coughs> uh the right to own um resources which they mined in space um for commercial purposes and that was in 2015 it was then reinforced just last year by President Trump um, in April last year, again with an executive order saying that anything mined or extracted um, commercially by private entity in space belonged to that individual or private entity. Um, and other countries have followed suit. So, for example, Luxembourg um, has done something similar, India, Japan. Um, and this has sparked a huge debate because there are those who read the Outer Space Treaty, um, particularly the provision, in fact, I have it here, saying that, um, uh, let me just quote it because it's just easier. Outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty by means of use or occupation or by any other means. So, so these kind of pro-private 
um, space commercialization, um, argue that by granting their nationals um, rights to, you know, these rights, they're not making any kind of sovereign territorial claim because it's, you know, it's not them that's doing that. And it's not over celestial bodies it's over what's in them. So they've they've drawn analogies to, for example, UNCLOS um, and saying that, you know, these private entities are like a ship sailing in international waters and just going fishing, which they're entitled to do. Um, but there are others that argue, well, actually, that's not the case because, um, you know, there are other provisions in the Outer Space Treaty, which says that, you know, space is, the co- is for the common heritage of all mankind that it's unfair to compare it with UNCLOS because, um, you know, fish are renewable, outer space resources are not renewable. And so therefore you should compare it more to kind of seabed um, mining and mineral extraction. And that is very heavily regulated and has the proceeds of it have to be shared out and et cetera. So it's created a big debate. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the answer is and I'm really <laughs> keen to speak about it because um it, it seems that you know that there are um organizations so the UN has a very a specific body which was actually set up around the same time that the outer space treaty was um was 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 enacted it's called copus as so it's the committee of outer space the peaceful use of outer space it, i think that's it yeah, um, that works. And yeah, <laughs> um, and and they have been worked. It has a legal subcommittee, which has been working towards essentially um, some kind of either updated outer space treaty or some kind of new instrument. Um, but obviously, given all these advances that are being made, it's very very difficult to get a consensus among you know states to sign up to it. Um, so you have that on the one hand, then you have these other states on the other hand, which is just going ahead and passing these domestic laws and just, you know, going ahead and sending rockets up to space. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to, you don't, you know, we should be, it is something to be encouraged, you know, these advances and yes, Earth's minerals will run out and, you know, everyone's saying now space mining is a question of when, not if. And so it's something that is going to happen and you don't want to stop it, but equally, I think it's really dangerous to to carry on um, doing it. Well, if I was an investor, at least, I would think it was quite risky to carry on doing it, given that there's, you know, such a big question mark over the rights that you actually have to what you get. Um, And so, yeah, that's... But I mean, that's where we are at the moment. My my mind's like exploding on all the, the possibilities and all the like lacuna in this type of treaty. For example... If you're talking about investors, wh- who are, what are they investing in? What's the territory? And who would then enforce against any misuse of that? Or if there's any debate on two people finding the same mining of the moon, um, I guess it, it's up to the signatories to go after each other in, in such a scenario? Or, you know, yeah, can, so- an, can a single investor, commercial investor rely on this treaty or this legal framework to enforce any rights? So that's the thing. So the, 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 the first question, I guess, is what rights do does a private um, individual, private investor have? And right. I guess the answer to that is absent any domestic legislation, which arguably may or may not be legally, um, you, know, subs- you know, solid in any case. Um, 
outer space, according to the Outer Space Treaty, is the common heritage of all mankind. So, you know, you could argue it's everyone's. But the this, the contracting states to the Outer Space Treaty um, are responsible for their uh, nationals, essentially. I can't remember the exact wording, but basically the America, for example, is, is responsible for American nationals in space. So okay. if... If um, Elon Musk, um, you know, sends up a rocket and it crashes into a rocket from someone from the UK, then arguably that UK rocket owner um, would have a, a re recourse against, you know, Elon Musk, but also the American government um, because okay. American government is responsible for it. But then there's nothing in the Outer Space Treaty um setting out how that UK rocket owner would have recourse against that. Like, there's no arbitration provisions, for example. There's no, um, right. there's nothing in there saying how it would go about enforcing that right. And to come to your example of if two people wanted to mine the same bit of, I think you said, mine the same bit of the moon. Yeah, there, there's nothing. There's nothing saying um, how that would work, which I find amazing and I, I suppose until now it hasn't been a problem and I suppose right. actually even right now as we speak it's, it's not a problem because you know until now no one's been able to get up there um, you know apart from governments um, but as we you know as we saw even this week as I mentioned to you you know Richard Branson's just managed to put up 10 satellites using an old uh, Boeing 747 and um, you know it, it won't be long before I, you know, when I when I first started looking at this area, people thought I was crazy because they said, oh, it's just some, something else, you know, way in the future, it will never happen. But it's actually, it is happening and you only need to read the, the papers every week and there's something else that's, um, right. you know, that pr private individuals have managed to do. So, Well, even yeah. something that's a bit more, I mean, that we can even see now, for example, if you have these satellites that have been launched and they crash, um, and they produce space junk that causes further crashes. And then you have kind of this like interesting tort scenario um, where you could actually have something quite new or a case that could happen in the near future about such crashes and who's liable and whose orbit was there for, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know the vocabulary to explain what type of dispute <laughs> it would be. Yeah, well, on that actually, so as, as so there there was, there are actually five out of, there are, well, there are five treaties um, UN treaties um, governing outer space. It's just the Outer Space Treaty is the main one. There is another one called the Liability Convention, um, although it doesn't do a, a massive amount. Um, it was also, um, you know, promulgated in the, I think it was the 70s, um, and it expands a little bit on um, who's liable, well, yeah, as the name suggests, who's liable for what. And again, states, in, in that example, a, a state the launching state, would be uh, responsible for um, oh, okay. whatever thing caused the damage. So um, if it was a UK, you know, satellite that crashed into something else, it would be the UK government that would be responsible. But also stemming actually that you've raised another point, which is um, space waste. Um, hmm. I mean, it. I find it incredible to think, you know, how everyone now is so aware and in tune with the environmental devastation that we're causing on Earth. 
but we're causing just as much devastation in space and we haven't even gone out there properly yet. I mean, there's so much space waste. Um, it, I think partly because of the cost of bringing a satellite back down when its life has expired. I mean, it's I even if it is possible, it would, you know, it's a hugely costly um, right. feat. And so, why, of course, why why would you um, or until you know without regulation, there's no incentive um, for for anyone to do that necessarily. Um, and until recently, again, the cost of bringing a satellite back down has been more than it has, yeah, it, it's outweighed um, the benefit of kind of refurbishing it and sending it back up. And that's only been something that's been done recently by um, SpaceX. They've managed to, you know, re bring bring things back down, send them back up. And But, in, but until recently, it's just been cheaper just send them up like a, on a one-life mission. But that, right. that's meant that, yeah, space pollution is, is, is really bad. And not just in terms of, you know, the environmental... Um, impacts and keeping it clean but in terms of damage that it can cause to other um other objects right so where do so we have these this legal framework which you say is you know not where it needs to be and is not as updated as it needs to be are there reforms happening what would the organization for the outer space treaty is nasa right no it's the un it's the un okay yeah. so our who are, I mean, are there, is there anything in the frontier as far as, you know, a modernization of this, of the framework or? So it's, I mean, it's certainly the UN and um, the COPUS um, or COPUS or I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce it because I've actually never uh, read about it, but um, it, it, and its legal subcommittee is very aware of the problem. Um, there's also been a working group set up um by the in the Hague, um, which is looking at um, it's called the Building Block Initiative, and it's it's kind of identifying building blocks which could be put together to form some kind of new um, international convention. But again, the problem is, and I I think I understand not having obviously been party to the meetings myself, but I understand that while progress has been made and while many view it as you know a necessary and inevitable um necessity there are certain nations that are entrenched in the view that you know they can't wait to have um because because you know this is very delicate <laughs> far-reaching agreement that will have huge implications and that takes right. time to negotiate and um and there are nations that just would prefer to you know, no, not do that. And I, I get that, you know, if you're one of the very successful um, nations making all these advances. But yeah, and, and so it's, while there are um, initiatives and work and working groups, um, I don't know, it doesn't seem like they are close to uh, achieving a, a right. solution. And I don't know if they will be. I think you're right because the the players of the game now are the richer countries that that were involved in the space race in the '60s, and those countries have clearly passed legislation that says finders keepers, uh, right. so they really don't have an incentive to concede anything, anything more than that. Um, so unfortunately, it'll be the the law chasing the commerce, which yeah, is never exactly. which is never a good law. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what the answer is, and I mean, in a situation 
like that. As I say, I mean, it is it is literally like finders keepers. It's like pirates yeah. going out to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I read of one more agreement, and then I want to get into the kind of a practical thing to wind up the segment. But there's there's a moon agreement that I've read about, and that's yeah. uh, that's specifically about mining, kind of like what we discussed. Yeah. So the moon agreement was um, a little bit later. I think it was the 1980s, and that um, that did seek to do some of what we're saying and and okay. protect actually, rather than give rights to um, give substantive rights to private individuals or private companies. It actually sought to further the protections in the Outer Space Treaty by saying, "Look, just to clarify, it's not just you can't have a sovereign." Um, appropriation of a celestial body you can't have any kind of appropriation by anyone every you know and and in that includes commercial ventures they're all prohibited um and it was it was an effort to try and um yeah to try and extend the outer space treaty in order to protect um outer space Uh, no one signed up to it (laughs) um Uh well no sorry that's not true (laughs) none of the principal spacefaring nations signed up to it which means obviously it's unfortunately um not very it hasn't been very effective (laughs) but one one option instead of the un now trying to seek to you know generate this and some kind of new agreement is to perhaps um try and revive the moon agreement but i think it's generally regarded as a as a failure um oh, okay or, or not as as a as, as a yeah as as not successful so i don't think it would be potentially the most positive starting point gotcha um, yeah <clears throat> so far we talked um, about the substance of of law but and it sounds like a lot of areas might be ripe for disputes given the or overlapping and sometimes inadequate substantive rules. And since we're on the arbitration station, what are the, sort of the, the, the disputes frameworks or framework uh, that exist? So I think, well, for a while now, obviously there have been lots of um, commercial disputes um, and they, I mean, they've, I've seen them before uh, many of the main, arbitration institutions just you know like the ICC the LCAA um, you know every very often they're they're reported on in the arbitration press and um, I think those institutions especially in light of their all of their continued revision of their rules to cater for all these complex um, multi-party multi-contract disputes I think actually um, those institute all, all of the main institutions and their rules are very well equipped for dealing with disputes arising out of this sector as well. Um, There are increasing, maybe slightly less, maybe it's just because I haven't come across as many, but um, investor state disputes relating to, so for example, commercial, sorry, going back, commercial disputes might be things like um, disputed launch agreements or um, disputed satellite manufacturer agreements. Investor state disputes, I mean, there was one in the press last week um, concerning the lease by a state of two satellites. Um, Again, because, you know, government, traditionally a government, um, you know, sector and and governments still uh, have a big part to play in the sector. So, yeah, so there was um, quite a high profile investor state dispute 
in the press last week. Um, that was an UNSA trial dispute. Um, and again, the UNSA trial rules, they're so advanced. Um, you know, the ICSID, I mean, they, they cater very well for space disputes. Um, there are some specific um, space arbitration institutions. Um, there's one um, based in France, but it's, I don't know if it's ever been used. It's quite, um, it doesn't have a website. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of publicize itself very well. Um, and I just read about it <laughs> um, when researching an article a few years ago. Um, and I had to, you know, request hard copy articles and go to a library and say, so I, yeah. I don't think, you know, like in the olden days. Um, um, actually, um, the name of it is even now escaping, which is, which is really bad. But it's, I think it's you may be forgiven if they don't have a web page and they don't publicize the rules <laughs> or anything. Like they don't want you to know the name probably. <laughs> right. But it, it even had in its rules the fact that secrecy was paramount. And, um, and, and I guess traditionally space activity did involve, only involve, you know, matters of, you know, state security and things. So I guess at some point in the past, secrecy in space went hand in hand, but obviously we've moved on a bit from that. There's also the PCA has a set of um, specific rules relating to disputes um, arising from the outer space industry. And I mean, they're, they're very similar, to be honest, to the UNSTRAL rules, but just with a few tweaks, like, um, like a panel of arbitrators, you know, a list with all of whom have space expertise um, and, for example, um, the ability of the tribunal to appoint certain advisors to assist it with matters only arising in this sort of this sector. But I don't, again, I don't know, I'm not aware of any disputes that have arisen in this sector that have been resolved by those rules. Um, I don't know if it's because then just not public or just because I haven't come across them. But um, all of the ones that, all of outer space disputes that I have come across or relating to outer space have, you know, have been before the main institutions. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think there, I mean, the case that I, I worked on one commercial case that had to do with um, a, a launch um, of a space vehicle. And it was, I think, I think you're right to point out that we have to address whether the institutions are the rules are capable of addressing these types of disputes because they are quite complex in the way they structure. And these launch agreements are sometimes just planning agreements because of based on when they plan for certain components to be integrated. And then when the launches are actually supposed to take place and then where the launches are supposed to take place is a territorial issue. So there, there's so many components with this that I think you're right to, to really focus on whether the rules can address it. So, um, but I, I, and I agree, I think, I think they can, as they exist. Um, the case mm. that I had was an SCC case. So that, that worked. Um, yeah. I think there are it, lots of ad hoc, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you just reminded me, I think there are lots of um, ad hoc arbitrations that go on as well. So other kind of space institu institutions like the ITU, for example, has a mechanism um, whereby, you know, it has an arbitration mechanism, but it's, it seems to be ad hoc. And, um, the European Space Agency and UTELSAT, they've all got, uh, you know, recourses, um, arbitration recourses, but I think that they've kind of got their own rules, but they're just all ad hoc. Oh, I see. 
Well, I hope to see more uh, disputes in the near future. Um, I think it's it's a very exciting uh, venture to be able to go into something completely unknown and and make the law as well as find you know some novel disputes. Um, so hopefully uh, we'll see more of those to come. I think we can wrap up there. So thank you very much for giving us a great introduction into the into the topic and some more questions to explore in our further individual reading. Well, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Perfect. I also wanted to ask about the Ixod convention because the name is so good. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was me trying to be like, I think I lost all inspiration by the end of my article. It's like, oh, <laughs> I was like, no one's going to get it unless I call it something kind of familiar. Oh, yeah, that'll do. Yeah, it sounds like a, a Polish person trying to say Ixod, then everyone will remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it was only after that article I realized how premature it probably was because until there are some substantive rights to enforce like you need to have the rights before you then you know need the vehicle through which to enforce them and I think that's kind of jumping ahead I don't not necessarily not not to not to not to hammer the the exit analogy too much but you know when the exit convention was enacted with with only procedural rights there were like five bits with substantive rights. And Ixit was thinking like, people will start entering into investment contracts and they will rely on Ixit. We start with the procedure and then that will mm. incentivize people to do substantive stuff to use the procedure. I didn't think of that. It, it might well, work the other way around as well. So <laughs> you, you may have been the, the Aaron Brokers of space arbitration. There you go. Great, that's <laughs> oh my Right, inaugural happy fun time of 2021, English as a second language or ESL or ESL for short, which is also the European what? Society of International I've never, Law. I've never heard oh, that, ESL oh, really? for a second language. Yeah, yeah sorry. That's, uh, so, <laughs> I, no, I, I get a lot of, of e ESL or ESL uh, comments in my, my private life from my native speaking partner who is annoyed whenever I say mouses <laughs> instead of mice or some other six-year-old mistake. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so I, I I thought about this because actually um, I I was pinged in a tweet. Someone who had nothing to do with arbitration, I think, asked the question on Twitter uh, about people. Please name people that you think speak great English with with good cadence and rhythm, but with an accent. <laughs> and someone, presumably a listener of of the arbitration station, whose name I don't have in front of me, and I apologize for that mentioned a bunch of arbitration lawyers, including Sabine Conrad from Germany and Gabriel Bottini from Argentina in this category of people with good English with an accent. And then mm. also ping me, Joel Dahlquist of the arbitration station. Ah, that's, that's so which funny. Which made me think, do I, do, I, do I have an accent to begin with, which is a problem. I always thought I sound vaguely European in English. And then I started thinking about this and how, I think we talked about this a long time ago, Sadia, that, that people take you for American every now and then. Yeah. So first of all, I have a few questions for you, Saria, because you also speak English as a second language uh, professionally. And But I also want to ask Brian, because you're a native speaker, what do you think of our English, Saria's in mind, and also in general, because you, <laughs> you communicate in your own language with a bunch of people every day who don't speak English natively. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Saria, you first. What are your takes? 
No, you. So should I? No, I, I, was, I was going to ask other things. Actually, I had other questions for Shadia. I'm asking you now, Brian. Yeah, Brian. You, you now you're, have you, a minute. Yeah, because to... you're you're the native. You're yeah, the native speaker. Okay. Yeah. So yes, re review our English. English. <laughs> Do we sound American too? Do I have enough time? <laughs> No, I mean, obviously, I don't, I, I, I don't even notice that you guys are ESL or easels. Um, but I would say is that your cadence and the speed and enunciation is very indicative of where you come from. So, Joel, it's very like short sentences, and you're you fall off your words, and it's you know more staccato, whereas which is Swedish the language, and then Sadia's is much more like a Gaillard in a hearing. So it's like fluid, lots of commas, and, and, it, and it goes quite nicely in the end of the words, <laughs> like go into the beginning of the next words. So it's, no period. No period. <laughs> no, but it's and very much like, um, you know, I, I picture a French speaker, like a, a, a small wave going across a river. Um, whereas like <laughs> Swedish is like washing your laundry down a grate in a well. <laughs> That's oh, it doesn't make uh, Sweden doesn't sound very appealing in this comparison. <laughs> but uh, but like as far as I, I think what this person is getting at, and which I'll now give it back to you, is that there's no consideration about English itself. So there's no really saying, oh, this person's ESL, and it's like graining on my ears. But the only difference that I would say and say like, oh, you're speaking English as a native speaker with this differentiation, that would be the only differentiation I can make. Because I, I, that's very nice of you, but I, I can hear when I listen to our earlier podcasts that, that both Sadia and, and I, and, and I think maybe me in particular, I, I can hear us making mistakes that we wouldn't make in writing, for example, like simple grammar mistakes or using the wrong mm -hmm. word because it's a podcast and it flows organically and it annoys me. Do yeah. you sit when we record, like, like silently noticing when we make mistakes and <laughs> yeah. holding your comments yeah <laughs> well just like you know like verb conjugations will be like a bit you know one one in like three episodes but i it's oh, yeah. charming it's nice i mean it's it would charming. be weird if you were like talking like a friends episode <laughs> i i get the comments sometimes that um people don't really know where, you know where i'm from um because the accent has just just changes so much according to where i am and who i'm speaking with it's a bit weird but then, but but some people don't think that um, you know they're they're afraid to ask if it's my second language or something. They just think it's my first language, but they just don't know where I'm from. But then I I would make like a silly mistake like this, and then they look at me. It's like, are you serious? Like why? <laughs> like or I don't know how to, like I I really generally don't know how to say a word, and I'm like, how do you say? And they're like, well, it's just that, you know, like right. as if I'm. I'm, you know, taking the piss or something. And I'm like, no, I just generally <laughs> don't know. And now my daughter, my daughter is correcting me now. She's like, no, it's not. The, the, it's the, 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 oh, you know, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on this note, did you guys read this amazing story about Alec Baldwin's wife? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because she was oh. in that position as well. She, I, mean, I have no idea about the merits of, of whatnot. Just for, for listeners, by way of background, very quickly summarizing. Alec Baldwin is married to an American woman who has a Spanish name. And it turned out that she changed her name from an English version. I can't remember exactly what her name is, to be honest. Do you know, Brian? You call it it's Hilaria. Or we, people call her Hilaria now because it's hilarious. I, yeah, but it used to be <laughs> Hillary or something, right? Yeah. She, she was born Hillary, yeah. And her parents are super American, super white uh, 
New England Americans, but they they love Spain. And she was a lot. They would go to Spain when she was young, and her parents now live in Spain. And she speaks Spanish fluently, and she speaks Spanish to her kids, and she identifies as bilingual, but she has no like cultural or ethnic connection to Spain whatsoever. And the case that was now, I think it was the New York Times that, that brought this up in an article that someone, someone tweeted about it and the New York Times wrote about it, that she has basically, the, the, the allegations are, she's basically been trying to pass herself off as Spanish or Latina and using that identity in public. And one of the examples given was when she was on a cooking show and she pretended or said that she didn't remember how to say cucumber in English and she just said it in Spanish instead of asked. I was like, how do you say that word? And now it turns out <laughs> English is actually her first language. <laughs> She's been American all <laughs> I didn't know that she had such a connection to Spain because I, to, in her defense, when I was living in Spain, there were words that would just come to me. And even in Swedish, actually. Um, that would come to me that I would like lose because I had spent mm-hmm. so much time there, but I don't know how much time she spent there, but it does happen. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I have no no uh, skin in the game here and I don't really care about her, but I, I will say, <laughs> and I, I think we can all agree as people who speak different languages all the time back and forth in the same day, that even in your first language, you forget words every now oh, and then. Oh, yeah, if, if you're absolutely. working in another language, it, it can happen. Even if you're fluent in two languages, it doesn't always mean that you're you know, perfectly able to, to recall every single weird saying or, or specific word. It does mean that it you're becomes right. It becomes even more complicated if you add additional language to the mix. So mm. my real mother tongue is Urdu, like Pakistani, which is what I spoke with my parents at home. Um, now, how does that connect with French? I'm not sure how does that connect with English. But what I do know is that at some point, somebody told me you're jack of all trades, master of none languages, because yeah, yeah. you're you're kind yeah. of mixing everything together in a, like in a soup or something. So it does happen to it's me perfect, that I... <laughs> you are the, the perfect arbitration lawyer. Yes, yeah, in a way. Arbitration in lawyers a way. approach the law as well. Like I know a little bit of these 10 different systems, but I'm not qualified <laughs> in any of them. <laughs> but let me tell you how, how it is. But that, you know, I'm writing Ruth as we, I mean, not like this very second, but literally an hour before we connected, I was on it and it's in Franklish, you know, we're like writing in French, citing in English, writing in French, quoting in English. And sometimes it's not just quoting um you know, it's like in the middle of a sentence and, and I find it perfectly okay. <laughs> and at some point, you know, it's not great to do that, you know, just stick with one, I guess. Um, I would tell myself objectively speaking. Uh, on that note, I have a question for you, for you, Sadie, on that. When you're writing in English, to bring this back to, to the arbitration practice relevance, mm-hmm. as opposed to speaking, when you're writing, yeah, are you writing British English or American English? Oh my gosh, that's another big issue uh, that you're, you've, you've, you know, that's a really good question. I had to, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult exercise. When I was working in the US, I had to train myself to draft a certain way, which mm. was completely different to what I was doing before when I was drafting in English in Europe, I would say, in Europe, mm-hmm, because yeah. even if I was in a French, you know, environment, a lot of people, like, of course, everybody knows in Paris, writes in English and works in English, etc. But the English that was used in New York with that American firm with all these American native speakers, and I think, Brian, you know, you must write that way, is so different, I would think. Yeah. And then um, even the tone, you know, it's oh, much, yeah. I, I just felt it was much more aggressive. And then I came, uh, when I moved to London, <laughs> I remember, yes, the first time I worked on a brief and my colleagues and the partner was like 
you you got to tone it down a little like (laughs) what's going on like what's going on and even today like I had that comment this morning it was like you this no you can't write that you know it's not possible and I was just like wow like I've been completely influenced by my the American time that I had so to answer to your question Jewel I don't I just again I, I I adapt to the style of whoever I'm working with. It really depends. Yeah, and that, that's a great point. It depends on the firm, it depends on the context, but but it, like as a default, I've been struggling with this now also moving to London. As mm-hmm. a default, if you, if you don't have like firm guidelines uh, from mm-hmm. your employer or if there isn't some sort of default because of the nature of the part, what, what is the default English, like email communication or is it US spelling or UK spelling? I think you should do U, uh, UK spelling. I think you should do you. <laughs> yeah, you do you just the you because <laughs> i i don't know yeah you can but you know sweden is is british english yeah i was taught british english but then i i actually learned english you know through american tv essentially so i'm somewhere in between and i think mm. this is if you're american obviously your default is american english if you're british your default is british english and that's the same applies if you're Australian or Canadian, et cetera. But if you're speaking just a second language, it's kind of hard to know on like a global market in an international environment if the default English you're supposed to learn is US or UK. And, and it yeah. really becomes a problem if you work with both US, UK uh, connections, which obviously happens all the time in international arbitration. You definitely just have to pick a lane because at Mannheimer, I did not pick a lane and I was <laughs> all over mm. the place. I had Zs everywhere, even me. Yeah, I had a problem now Yeah, all the, all the time. Like, I, I think I find myself in, like my, in, in non-formal correspondence drafting in U.S. English, but in formal mm. correspondence, like drafting, actual drafting cases, for some reason I use British spelling and British words. And mm. It's completely inconsistent, yeah. which is obviously the, 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 the problem. And your word also defaults to, you got to choose, right? So if you're, your proofing you know, writing realization or something, it's with a Z or with a S, you know, it just, um, yeah. it's just... It's an issue. Like we were just had that discussion about most favorite treatment. Is it F A V O U or is it O? And then the the result was just pick a pick a side, just stick with it. Yeah, um, yeah. it's it's a tough one. I think you're right though, Sadia, with the tone as well, and that's an that's an English second language, not issue, but interesting exploration, which is how much do you adopt of the English second language. Do you adopt the tone? Do you adopt the adjective use? Do you adopt the most egregious default ever committed by the other party? Do you adopt that or do you adopt like your your own? And I think that's, this is what probably the person is pointing out is that you don't need to adopt something and lose yourself in the process, but you can adopt something and be yourself. And that's probably why this is kind of a remarkable thing, which is someone who has an accent, but is still completely international and able to be understood by all. That should be ideal yeah it translates into so much more um you know than just the grammar or the terms that you use it's also the style like that we talked about tone but also the structure of sentences um Mm. like in french people would write it's a little bit you know you said earlier like it's much more longer sentences um and very stylish if i may Mm -hmm. say you would try to use different terms to make them sound good you're very attentive to 
what it looks like, etc. In mm-hmm. a way. Oh yeah, oh, right. Brian, is, Brian was actually onto something because you were describing the literal opposite of Swedish legal drafting. Like you, you no, just no write synonyms ever. Yeah, and then you just you just go to the point, right? It's like one sentence. You make yeah. your point. You go to the next, and paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. It's literally sometimes one sentence per per idea, whereas in in French writings, it's, it's a bit different. So yeah, I think that's also, it's very difficult to navigate the waters um, between mm-hmm. that style of writing, um, I would say, when you work with international people, because people don't have the same expectations. How, Joel, I remember you were saying in one, we had a conference with uh, SWAN, the Swedish Women of Arbitration Network, and um, you said, you, we were talking about whether we should do it in Swedish or English. And you said, I feel more comfortable discussing legal issues in English. Mm. So my question is, do you now feel Sussel or Swedish second language when you are talking about like complex arbitration principles and legal issues? Absolutely. 100%. Really? Yeah. And it's, 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 a, it's a serious problem. I'm currently drafting an expert opinion in a domestic Swedish case cases in Swedish, it's seated in Sweden, everything is Swedish. And uh, I realized my literature, even about Swedish arbitration law, is in English. My keypad mm-hmm. on my laptop is in English. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I don't even know how to, I've done it before, obviously, so I can write legal Swedish, but it really is an effort to the mm-hmm. extent that I would almost say that in legal sense, in the legal sense, in the legal context, it is my second language. And there are, especially, this is not, this is a commercial case, so it's not an issue, but, but I've had a few times I've had to speak English, uh, Swedish, uh, sorry, about investment arbitration. Mm-hmm. And there are so many terms of art and investment law that just don't exist in Swedish at mm. all. So you basically like have to make up mm-hmm. legal phrases, which, which is not something you should do just lightly because it obviously matters in terms exactly. of consistency and exact meaning. And it is absolutely the case. And I, I hate to be this like expat person who's like, oh, I don't even know my own language anymore. I'm so international. I do everything in English. It's very annoying. But but I'm I'm getting to that point and I, I am ashamed to say so. Your PhD was in English or in Swedish? English. It was in English, right? Yeah. So it's near it's I think I've written one one piece professionally that has been published in Swedish. It was the first thing I wrote for a Swedish right. legal journal, everything else. Right. Mm. Teaching as well. I barely taught in, in yeah, Swedish. Yeah. I've been teaching in English. I mean, I feel Swedish. the same way. It's been more than ten years that I've been working essentially in English. So when I do essentially, I mean, so when when the I do ha- I do work in French as well, of course, but when I do work in French, it's it's uh and that's, I have the reverse problem. Then I speak French, you know, if French is my language, right? So there's absolutely no accent, no problem when I speak, et cetera. And then when I write, <laughs> the terms that I use are, uh, you know, they say you're doing franglais or you're anglicizing mm. this term doesn't exist or something like that. So I have that other issue. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a constant adaptation, I think, that we have to struggle with as uh as arbitration lawyers. But in a way, what that means possibly is that there's going to be a, a specific arbitration language that everybody is using, which is neither, you know, the typical English, American, nor the British or nor European style thing. It's just different. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a harmonized the, language. The I- yeah. IBA rules of, of uh, arbitration <laughs> <Yeah>. English. <laughs> it's a little, little exactly. bit of everything. Arbitration English. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. And, you know, being in a hearing with Sabine, for example, I... I thought it was quite clever and an interesting advocacy point to use German um, nomenclature, like 
salt and peppered within her. And, and it was almost expected of everyone to kind of understand where she was going with it and not to have to translate every single word. And I thought that was quite, I mean, the whole thing was translated back and forth. So um, you could see the record for the translation if you really needed it. But I thought it was an interesting like advocacy point to be able to be able to do that. And I, I think it happened. I mean, we adopt Latin, we adopt some French words as, you know, words that have now become, you know, the travaux is the travaux and we don't even say preparatory mm -hmm. works or anything. So, travaux, yeah. <laughs> even I say travaux instead of travaux now. <laughs> like, well, what are the travaux preparatory saying that? Yeah. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> yeah. You have to put the American accent on these words sometimes in order to like communicate it or else people are like... Says the American. Oh my gosh, I'm not sure that people who advocate it for English to not be the <laughs> lingua franca of arbitration be happy with that oh, statement. Yeah, we're back, back to English centrism now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, exactly. yes, I think this is, we can do this forever. I, I can tell that we're having a good time, but we also have to think of the listeners who don't have two and a half hours to listen to an episode. So I think we should wrap up this uh, first episode of the second half of the fifth season, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be back as always two weeks from now with another packed episode and hopefully we'll do some uh, uncentral working group stuff then because I think it will be either during or just around the, the next working group meeting which will be conducted remotely uh, we shouldn't promise too much but that, that's the ambition at least uh, when we yes. come back Amen. you could follow us uh, on Twitter at the arbitration station the arb, at station. The arb station yes the arb arb station, station yeah. was too long or email us at the, uh, the arbitration station at gmail.com. And uh, we want to thank Jan Kunstier, uh, no researcher, right? This was a, a non researched episode. No. <laughs> Doing it on our own. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Still great. All right. Stay safe, guys. See you. Bye, everyone. Bye.